Good morning, friends. We are going to begin, as we always do, and I think perhaps maybe as we particularly need this morning, or at least as I particularly need this morning, with a moment of prayer. So, Gracious God, we uh, come to you, people of uh, your uh, blood, people who desire to know you, to know who you are. We thank you that you welcome us, that you rejoice at our coming. We thank you that we are received as we are and that you love us enough not to desire that we stay there, but that we might grow uh, greater in our knowledge of you and in our love in the world. We ask that as we study and seek to understand uh, your will, your text, your true word of God, Jesus Christ, that we might better know it and better live it. In the name of God our Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I like modern art, and I know that it has a terrible reputation. There's a lot of people who harp on modern art, saying that it doesn't look or feel like real art, or that a toddler could have done it. But for me, personally, modern art is a complex genre of artistic expression that allows for different messages and symbols. There's a lot of complexity to modern art that I really like, and I like that it's colorful, and I like that it's angular, and I like that it comes in different kinds of forms, and I think it's a great expression of artistic creativity. Some of you probably prefer things like impressionist art, where it's, you know, Van Gogh or Monet or the person who does the little dots. So when you get up close, it's dots, but when you back away, it looks like a picture. Uh, maybe some of you really like uh, classic Greek and Roman sculptures, right? Where it's like there used to be paint on it, but now it's all white and they're posed in different heroic sorts of angles. Some of you would way rather just have like a coffee table book of like Thomas Kincaid. That's kind of your style. And some of you don't really like art that much at all. And that's just fine. Preferences, things that we like and that we don't like, are often influenced by our culture. And our culture and our preference often are influenced by where we come from. But a lot of our preferences, or maybe a lot of our differences, things that make you and I not the same, are much more than just a preference, right? They're things that are deeper within us that make us distinct and different from one another. When we're thinking about something that we prefer, maybe it's a little easier to remember that my way is not the best way. It's just an opinion. But when something feels deeper, more innately a part of who we are, it can feel challenging to remember that that also doesn't have to just come one way. In our church community, in the group of you gathered here, gathered in physical or digital space, we are very different. You might have noticed that. And one of the things that makes us different is the things of our life that have brought us to where we are. So that might be something like formal education. There's a variety of kinds of educational formats, and we have a wide set of things in this room as to whether someone has completed any variety of degrees. Another difference that makes us is our family background and context. Many of you are from Kansas, and a surprising number of you are from like this 
specific area of Kansas, not even just Kansas in general, but like here. But some of us grew up in different states, state just one north, south, east, or west. And a few of us grew up on, God forbid, the east coast. And in all honesty, some of you didn't even grow up in the United States at all. And these home contexts impact our sense of self, our value systems, and our connections to one another. Another way that we're different from each other is the way that we practice our faith. So some of this comes from the influence of your religious background, whether you were in church a lot as a child or not, whether you kind of came to church as an adult. And maybe we might look at people whose religious contexts are more liturgical. They got a lot more candles than we do. There feels like from the outside that there's a lot of like stiff, strict rules. Maybe you look at that faith and you say, that is not really the same kind of faith that I have. Or maybe inversely, you look at the charismatic tradition, like the church community that's just down the way from us, and their physical and vocal expressiveness, their liturgical dancing, their speaking in tongues, maybe that feels totally different from the faith that you know in your life. But religious differences are also sometimes smaller than that. Maybe you're the kind of person who likes to raise their hands in worship. And maybe you're the kind of person who that would never occur to you to raise your hands in worship. Maybe you don't like the songs we sing. Or maybe you only like some of the songs we sing. And maybe you don't like the songs you think are spiritually weak, according to whatever rubric you discern to be best. Maybe for you, in your life and your practice, studying the Bible is the best way to know God, and you do it morning and evening every day. And maybe you might even look down on other people who don't do that, who spend more time in prayer and contemplation. Even our ability to judge the expression of someone else's faith can lead us to a place of judgment. They're not a real Christian because they don't worship like I do. They don't actually live out their faith. Do they even care about Jesus at all? People are different. And more specifically, Christians are different from one another. And it is not just questions of culture, of preference or background, but also of spiritual practice, spiritual expression. But not to mention our values, how we prioritize those values in our life. We don't even have time to get into the question of politics and the variety of social and political opinions in this room. Christian communities, and yes, this Christian community, is different, each piece. And sometimes that difference is more like dissonance, like multiple pianos playing a similar tune at the same time, but in different keys. It's almost jarring at times when we experience it. When we spend time with other Christians, sometimes their life feels at odds with our life. And we can't imagine how we're going to be on the same page about anything. We are simply too different. How are we supposed to live and serve in community, to work towards the same central goal, or even just spend time with people who are just totally different from yourself? Well, thankfully, Jesus has already seen this problem and has addressed it. 
we're going to talk about this question today from the perspective of the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles. Our text is the story of Jesus calling them in the book of Matthew and the task that Jesus gives them in that call. So we're going to read together from Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 in the New Revised Standard. Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not take a road leading to the Gentiles, and do not enter a Samaritan town, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with a skin disease, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. Take no gold or silver or copper in your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for laborers deserve their food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is in it who is worthy and stay there until you leave. As you enter the house, greet it. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave that house or town. So we get this list of the 12 disciples. And something worth noticing is that ordinary rabbis, regular spiritual teachers like Jesus was, would have had students who were mostly one kind of person. And it's exactly the kind of person you're imagining in your mind. Whatever person in your class that was aiming for Harvard, whether they got there or not, overly studious, spends a lot of time in the library, naturally good with languages, that kind of thing. Those are the kind of followers that a rabbi would have. Because to learn the kinds of teachings that a rabbi is going to give requires a lot of academic rigor. And ordinary folk weren't really a part of that. But Jesus doesn't keep up that trend. And so we're going to read this list and understand more about these disciples and the width of their experiences in life. So between the text and a few minor outside sources, we get clues about the differences between these men. And so we're going to start with the easier ones to see and kind of work our way down into more complicated things. So the first is similarities and differences in location. The majority of Jesus's 12 disciples were from the same region of Israel in the north, Galilee. And in fact, seven of the 12 were from the same town in Galilee, Capernaum, which only had at the time about 1,500 people living there, which is, in the grand scheme of things, not that many people. And so these seven of that 12 knew each other, even the ones who were not siblings, They had connections. Their families had dealings with each other. They saw each other in synagogue on Saturdays. And so this means that within that group of seven, there were a lot of cultural overlap. 
but within the group of the 12 as a whole, there's greater variety. Andrew and Peter, James and John are the brothers that we have confirmed within the text. They're all from that town in Capernaum. But James and John were also likely cousins to Jesus himself. And of those four brothers listed who had a lot of internal conflicts, three of the four of them were chosen for Jesus's inner circle. So you can imagine the tensions that existed even just in those four men whose backgrounds were very similar and who had a lot of overlap. But as, as we look at the rest of them, these, complicate, these connections get more complicated. The others from that region, which is Philip, James the Lesser, and Matthew, and then the others, Bartholomew and Simon the Zealot, both of whom are from the town of Cana, you may have heard of it. And then we have Thaddeus and Thomas the Twin, is his nickname, who were also both from the region of Galilee. So they've got some overlap, but it's more like, you know, if you're from Wichita and then you live out here, it's a very different kind of culture, right? They didn't have as much connection to Jesus or as much connection to this inner circle. And Judas, our last man, wasn't even from this area. His family is from Kerioth in the south of Israel. So his cultural background is totally different. And then there are the other relationships that existed. We've already listed two sets of brothers that we see in the text. There's actually also a third set that's pretty likely in the story. James the Lesser and Matthew the tax collector are both listed as having the same name of a father, and the name is an unusual one. So it's possible they weren't related, but it's pretty likely that they were also siblings. So of the 12, six of them are actual brothers, (laughs) and some of those six are also cousins to Jesus. So you can see that there are layers to the relationships that exist here. We've got the rivalry between the two clear sets of brothers and the power struggles that exist within their time leading with Jesus. Some of these points in which one set or the other feels like they know best how to convey the message and mission of Jesus. There's also some previous friendships that existed before the 12 are called together by Jesus. Bartholomew and Philip are listed as having been friends before this time of calling. Andrew and Philip share a connection, maybe one of education, so much so that when Philip has to bring a major question to Jesus, he needs moral support, he goes and asks Andrew to go with him. And in addition, Andrew and John, the baby of the group, they're both the younger of the brothers. They both followed John the Baptist before Jesus even came along, spiritually devoted to this leader until Christ called them. So these are just some of the relationships that exist in this 12. Then you have the religious and political differences that were within the community. We don't have everybody's voting polls, right? They didn't vote, they were in the Roman Empire. But we do know that Matthew is a tax collector, which essentially means he's a government sellout. He's betrayed his own people by working for the Romans and making extra money. And that's not really going to go over well with most of the group that's there, right? And then we have Simon the Zealot on the complete other side, who is a religious extremist. The Zealots were sort of what was called the fourth sect of Judaism. You've got the religious groups of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You've got the Essenes, who kind of go into the desert and mind their own business. And then the Zealots, who wanted to bring about a religious rule in Israel by violent force. So if they thought you weren't a true Jewish person, or if you were 
cavorting with the Romans, let's just say, they would come to your house and they would threaten you or they would kill you. And so we have these internal political divisions, social divisions, not just disagreements, but people whose lifestyles were directly at odds with one another. These men are from different towns and different regions. They have different backgrounds. They're ordinary workers. Some of them are fishermen. Some of them are government officials. They have internal family and social relationships. They have varying degrees of education. We know that some of them are more educated in the law. Some of them spoke Greek. Some of them could read and write, but not most of them. That's Matthew and Philip and Bartholomew, by the way. And some of these differences between the disciples are things that they chose. They had some vote in, right? That's political and social differences, um, education levels, career to some degree, religious perspective and practice. But some of these elements that made them different were not things they chose. Where they grew up, what kind of a family they had, their background. Jesus calls them all the same, without difference or differentiation. But the question still stands for us, how do you manage, what do you do with such a discordant, incompatible, dissimilar group of believers? How do you lead them? These 12 disciples were in some ways too different. It caused internal weakness and fighting and pettiness within the community. Their deep family dynamics and religious cliques and political chasms and religious regional differences that made on paper this community completely impossible. This group of people could not exist together in the same room, let alone travel and learn together for years under the same rabbi. Except, of course, it wasn't impossible because it happened. It's important for us to remember that they are here not because they chose to be, in some sense, they had to choose, but because they were chosen, because Jesus called them specifically. Jesus picked ordinary people to be a part of his inner circle. They were not all one kind of person, not all one kind of faith and practice, not all of one mindset, but each chosen just the same. It's also important for us to notice that Jesus doesn't tell them that they have to reject their own identities before they are called. In order to come alongside them, they do not have to step beyond all of the things that make them who they are. They're not taught to reject their background, their upbringing, not taught to throw away their preferences, not even publicly reject their political and social leanings. Instead, what they are given is this a unifying focus, a direction. This is not to erase their personal identities, but for them to bring their perspectives to the same central goal. Jesus doesn't ask them to conform to some ideal model of a disciple, to cut off the parts of themselves that doesn't fit in the form of a good Jewish boy, but he gives them an orientation, a message that says, go and tell the people who don't know, tell those who need to hear it, tell those on the outside, good news is here, good things are coming. This news is not generically good news, but specifically good news. Jesus' coming means that things are changing. 
what could have been is now no longer, and what is is starting to happen. It is not good news for those who are in power, but it is very good news for those who are in need. So we see these disciples, probably the weirdest pairs of men you could imagine in your life, I mean the oddest of odd couples, are sent out to tell and do good, to let people know the joy and hope of the coming of Christ, to make that good news concrete to them through the working of healing miracles, through the distribution of resources, through good works to the kingdom of heaven. Without Jesus, these men might have known each other tangentially, maybe, some of them, but they wouldn't have spent time together like this, and they certainly wouldn't have traveled together, and they certainly wouldn't have done what they were called to do. But the presence and person and calling of Jesus of Nazareth was so compelling, so important, so bone-deep central, that they would do anything necessary to be a part of that community. This means for them trusting Jesus's choice to call each of them, and boy, was that a challenge. I imagine them thinking to themselves, maybe every day, after all, what good can come out of Peter, from Andrew, from James, or from John? What good could come from Philip, or Thomas, or Matthew? What good is there in Bartholomew, or James, or Simon, or Thaddeus, or Judas? But with Jesus' unifying message, by his instruction, by his very presence, these men would impact a world filled with deep need by this message from their Savior. God had come, and that good news meant a better world. So if it's true for these 12 very different men, what does it mean for us? I don't have to tell you that we, even in this very room, are in a million different places with a million different perspectives. Sometimes those perspectives are at odds with each other. But the message of the disciples in this story is that we can be from different places, different contexts, different political and social views, different ways of living out our faith, and we can still have one central message of Christ. We, like the disciples, were not born to this, but were chosen just as God chooses each one. And by our saying yes to that calling, we are welcomed into a place with one thing to do. Share the good news. This sort of larger holiday season, approximately now through like mid-January or so, we're going to find ourselves in spaces with Christians and others who do not look like us, act like us, live out their faith in ways we think are good and acceptable, whose political and social preferences are very different from our own, that's inevitable. What do we do when we come into these contexts? What do we do when we sit at a table with these very people? How do we live out this instruction of Christ when others around us are not always acting rightly, even as Christian believers? Our role is to remember our task given by Jesus to share the good news and to do good works that demonstrate the reality of that good news. 
Now, I want to be clear here, sharing good news does not mean offering an altar call at your Thanksgiving table. I don't want any phone calls telling me that you did that, and I don't want to get blamed for that, okay? But it does mean keeping the good news in mind when we sit at the table, when we interact with others, when we have conversations. It means not placing judgment on other people, whether that judgment is because of family background or context, formal education or a lack thereof, their way of practicing and living out faith, or their relationships to other people. While central elements remain the same, there is no one way to be a disciple of Christ. And when we place ourselves in a space of judgment, then we overstep our rightful boundaries. It also means living out good news more than just sharing it, offering generously of the things that you have, whether that's time and money, whether that's joy and love, whether that's compassion and support, whether that's forgiveness. Good news must be good news to those who would be normally left out because Jesus goes first to those who are on the fringe, not to those who are in power. It also means not getting tied up in appearances or in luxuries, whether that's in your home or in somebody else's. To live as ordinary people means knowing the differences between us and others are a chance to see the glory and beauty of God in more than one way. Our overemphasis at times of comfort and presentability keep us from knowing other people in a deep way. And it is our work not to allow those things to separate us from other people. Lastly, it means being the better person when someone else is acting a fool not reacting when someone tries to bait you in conversations, not allowing someone who's a fire starter by nature to rule the day. It means approaching people in compassion until such a point as it becomes necessary to remove ourselves, shake the dust from our feet. In a world that always has divisions and differences, Jesus offers us as Christians a unifying message and a unifying task. We are given this central focus for our lives, and out of that, our individual selves and perspectives can offer the truth of the message without removing ourselves from it. We can speak to people or groups with better efficacy and strength because of who we are, and out of that, share that good news. Like these disciples, we are very different. And at times, our own worlds are in contrast to each other. But because we are believers, there is one force for unity in our lives, the good news of the presence of Jesus Christ, whose authority and power means good things for each of us. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org. 
and click on the donate button. Or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.